today is February 16th. Welcome to Neuroscientist Talk Shop, UTSA's neuroscience podcast. Um, our guest today is Bennett Ivey, who is Senior Biomedical Research Engineer at the Air Force Research Laboratory. Can you say something about, it's AFRL is what it's known yeah. Can you say something about what that is? Um, well, the Air Force Research Laboratory is a, originally a collection of eight different labs that were all DoD labs. Um, one, the one in San Antonio was the Armstrong Lab. Um, about, I would say, I think it was about 15 years ago, but I'm not 100% on the historical perspective. They decided to combine all of them into what's called the Air Force Research Lab. So we have uh, eight directorates. Uh, one of them is the Air Force Office of Scientific Research. So that's what academics would know because you can apply for funding through them. So they're typically basic science group. Um, they're a conglomerate of program managers that have their own specialties that uh, essentially give money to both the rest of the Air Force and also outside. And then the other seven directorates are what they call tech directorates that are broken up into by their mission. So you have uh, space, um, directed energy command, directed energy uh, materials, information, uh, you know, just basically, I, I don't know all of them exactly, um, but they all do their, their specialties. And most of them, uh, sorry, there's also a sensors directorate. They're mostly located in Wright Pat. Um, we have a couple satellite campuses here and in Albuquerque and in Rome, New York. Uh, Rome, New York mostly does information. Um, and uh, so I'm also part of, uh, it's not really called a director anymore. It's called the Human Performance Wing. Um, so the San Antonio group, because we deal with biological systems, we're part of the Human Performance Wing that is composed of the School of Aerospace Medicine, which does a lot of aeromedical training. So their, their mission is mostly training and some research on the medical side. Then we have um, something that's called AFIOH, I think. Don't quote me on that. Uh, they do mostly um, training as well. And then there's the Air Force Research Lab component, which is was called the Human Effectiveness Directorate, but now it's called the Airman Systems Directorate, and that's where I work. Um, so inside there, that's getting very so good. So human product. effectiveness became what? Airman Systems. Airman Systems. Systems, yeah. So it's essentially... Airmen are humans. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, it's, yeah, it's not to change. It, it's, to, it's to align the... The name is to align it better to what our purpose is, which is... Essentially, when a system involves an airman, like a cockpit, so we have a group that does a lot of cockpit gas exchange. Uh, we have people that do, um, as you saw, TDC or TDCS, uh, stimulation human performance augmentation, how to better train humans, like a lot of psychological research. And then we specifically focus on what they call the bioeffects directorate. So we have nanotox, uh, laser, and radio frequency bioeffects. So that's kind of the four main research areas. And that's why they call it airman systems, because really the, what we do for the Air Force is we augment the warfighter in whatever platform or system they're working in. Uh, so that's where we come from. So in my case, as I, as I said in my talk, we really focus on ensuring safety of airmen around RF systems. That's our main mission. And a whole lot of basic research. Quite a bit of basic that. research because, we're yeah, we're tasked with trying to understand what EM energy does to the biological systems. Excellent. So there it is. That's the, the final. I'm the, sorry. The, well, no, no, that's great. No, no, that's a, what an education. I, don't, I didn't know about it. It was stuff. Doesn't Air Force creates a lot of electromagnetic fields, I guess. We are pretty much the one-stop shop for that. Yeah. Okay, and I didn't introduce, as usual, we have Charlie Wilson here. Hi, Hi. Charlie. And we have Fidel Santa Maria. Hi, how are you? Hi, Fidel. And I'm your host, Salma Qureshi. So I should just say, if it's not obvious yet to everyone, um, for our listeners, that as excited as I am to get into this discussion, I feel like I have to warn you guys that um, we may not hit a ton of neuroscience head-on, but don't give up on us, because the way I see it, our guest is mining such like fundamental biophysical properties of cells and, and membranes, and he's doing it at scales, you're doing it at scales, that we're really not used to thinking about, all of which is clearly um, important to framing how we understand neurons and their dynamic range of responses. So that's the neuroscience. So um, so in this case, uh, Bennett, you're, you're looking at 
membrane responses to pulsed high energy fields is the way I understand. You can correct all of this because I'm going to say everything wrong. Um, so but the context of that is for most of us that we that we're familiar with this sort of thing in, um, in biology is, is really electroporation, which is like an old technique that we've used for like a generation now to um, permeabilize cell membranes and, and DNA transfection protocols. And so is that is that the same thing? Is that what, what you're what you're looking at? Can we talk? About, is that sort of the right? Yeah. Way to frame so this and, electroporation is kind of the backdrop science in which we frame all of our questions because there's established theories and understanding of how that works. Um, we specifically are looking at much more rapid fields because of the promise of much more of a subtle effect. Electroporation is quite a damaging effect, actually, as you probably know from you lose a lot of cells when you do that. Um, our goal with understanding the high fields is can we tune that effect to very subtle effects, to, to very subtle responses from the cells, some of which are advantageous. We don't want to really, it's, uh, the talk was mostly formed on membrane disruption, but we really want to look at uh, novel ways to stimulate and to control the biological process, not hinder, injure, or destroy. So our goal is not really to, you know, kill cells or, I mean, those that are studying cancer treatment using this technology, of course, they want to eradicate tissue. Um, but in our case, we really look at it as a way of uh, changing, the, changing the biological system. Uh, so my collaborator that I work with very closely looks at neuro inf uh, near-infrared stimulation with the same goal in mind, is can we use near-infrared uh, light to stimulate similar to optogenetics but without the need for a probe? Can we modulate neurological activity or, in this case, muscle so we're not really after, um, what do you call it, transfection efficiency like electroporation is classically. We're more about trying to understand what effect we are having and whether or not that effect can be used uh, in a biotech way or some way to augment the cell system, if that makes sense, from an external cue. So, um, but, but, so what I understand, what I've heard about your work, is that you're looking at like these, these nanoscale short sort of pulse perturbations, right? Yes. And then they have... And in, in your case, in the form of, 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 of a high-energy electric field, or, or and, and you can describe that better. But um, but what, but then you see these effects that run sort of for minutes. Yeah. And so, you know, what's what what's interesting to me, and everybody here is going to have a different point of view on this, is like is is how how do you even begin to understand sort of the the mechanistic transitions across that level of magnitude, that those scales of magnitude, right? So you go from yeah, that's, I mean, it's, well, that's so. a really good question. Uh, a colleague of mine that uh, is really working on the modeling of this concept um, is, have a, is, is basically challenging the field now to try to understand that. Essentially, we, we treat the cell as an electric circuit like we have classically for years, and we assume that it just responds that way. But as I, as I said in the presentation, there's, this, there's a biophysical interaction that's incredibly brief. But then there's this long cascade of biological events, all of which we haven't properly identified to understand the full effect that we're having on the cell. So one counter, uh, one way to talk about that is, I guess, the, the thing that drove us into looking at, as far as a fundamental question, to looking at genetic response, uh, using the cell again as a dosimeter. You know, what, what happened to you? Tell us what happened using your genetic things. The, the, the concern I had there is that we use electroporation all the time. Uh, we have genetic changes that last 24 to 48 hours with NCEP. So when you put a, uh, something into a cell using electroporation, you're also doing other things, and you're in no way categorizing that. And it, it's actually it's hilarious. It's, it's interesting that there's a complete void. I think I found one or two papers total looking at the effects of electroporation on cellular genetic transcription and activity over a long period of time, whereas that's a pretty accepted tool that you use all the time. So I think that if you spend time, in our case, looking at the biophysics and then the long-term biological consequences of these electrical pulses, be them short or long, 
you may start to understand some of the things that have happened in transfection science that maybe don't have the right outcomes or why things don't work the way they should or some things don't work, you know, you have efficiency issues. So I think fundamentally it'll answer a lot of questions as to what how that process has worked, even though we've exploited it very well, and what we might also be concerned about with certain things that don't seem to work. Does that make yeah, yeah, no, okay. absolutely. So but in terms of like the initial um, perturbation, right? So that's the that's an early membrane effect. So that yes. so let's so let's start there because sure. you have you do have a lot of sort of a, a good sort of physical understanding of what's going on at that at that very um, initial stage. No. Uh, so okay, so I'll dive deeper. Um, the problem with electroporation is that it was always treated as a whole and the DNA just fell through a hole. Well, that's not true at all. Um, there's a lot of data from scientists in my field that continue to study these un, under the, these concepts, and they actually find that the plasmid DNA is not falling through the cell. It's actually being pushed through the membrane, not through a hole, but just being pushed through the membrane. And they can show it very definitively with a uh, tagged DNA molecule, and as it goes through the lipidic portion, you get more fluorescence as that tag goes through the lipid phase and then back into the aqueous phase. So they can actually watch it go through the cell in real time, no hole, no anything. So really, the, the concern is that Electroporation has been treated as this concept of we made holes and things fell through the hole. But there's a lot of physics behind why that's not really likely. There's a lot of charge issues. There's things that would make it not sound like it's just going to wander in because it can. It really can't. Um, so that that those bigger questions that float out there are obviously relevant in what we're doing with shorter pulses, but we don't see the shorter pulses as any different. It's kind of a mechanistic continuum. So just because I happen to use shorter pulses just makes it easier not to mess a lot of things up because, like I said, the longer pulses are quite violent. And you can only get so long, low in amplitude before nothing happens. As you go shorter, you have this much larger window of opportunity to do smaller and more subtle effects, if that makes sense. So can everything be, that's been seen be explained without holes? Do we not? Depending on, depending on who you talk to, I would say yes. Uh, as far as electroporation, uh, most of it is considered fluoretic pushing of stuff through the cells rather than massive holes. And the holes tend to work against you. In my opinion, in, as far as survival, the but more infections do happen. I mean, without the electroporation, somehow viral particles penetrate, enter implants. I mean, yeah, absolutely. I, mean, I was always under the assumption that the viruses essentially dock and inject. But I'm not a depending a depending which guy, virus, so. right? So, so I mean, that that's during uh, phages, right? I yeah. mean, that's just like pressure, and you can measure the pico mutants in, in the DNA, and then it's just like piercing, right? But that's not. They're not making an electric field. No, no, no. To make a hole. But if you if you have a plasmid, but if you have plasmids, oh, they'll fuse naturally. Yeah, they'll just they'll they'll get in, right? Well, there's I think there's always a possibility that the plasmid will fuse. I'm not a uh scientist, but I know if you apply if you apply, there's a also a field of electrofusion, which is basically doing exactly that. If you have, you mean not sorry, not a plasmid DNA. I mean like a liposome, right? Mm-hmm. Plasma DNA, I think, is mostly driven in by electric fields. Uh, in this case, uh-huh. oh, okay, unless there's lipofectamine or some chemical agent. Oh, right, right, right. I think that, I mean, you have a lipid, then that that could be, you could have a natural fusion of the membranes and stuff like that. But right. I, I thought like pores can occur. Oh, sure. No, it's not like the, natural, right? Yes. I mean, yes. No, so I'm not, I'm not debating that pores exist. I'm just saying that, that that is not the mechanism. Most of the story, and there's been a lot of counter data to suggest. There's actually there's been one. There's a, a report of pores in a membrane that they saw with freeze fracture uh, microscopy, but it's been heavily refuted that if you do freeze fracture SEM 
I think TEM, mm-hmm. uh, you'll get holes in membranes every time because of the way that it's done. Yeah. Uh, so we really haven't seen until very recently visualization of pores. And now some new work that's being done in living membranes, I think it came out last year, they actually have visualized fluorescent, uh, fluorescent particles in and around a pore. I don't know 100% how... Uh, to, to describe it fully for them. But basically, they have localized that pores can form in membranes, and that's really the first time they've indirectly visualized pore formation kind of stochastically in a membrane in random mm-hmm. locations. But before then, there's never been a picture to actually prove the theory of a pore being formed. It's just been phenomenology, like PIs going in. Uh, well, there's, the problem with PI is it does a lot of things. It doesn't just do, you know, we always say, oh, holes get formed, PI goes in. Uh, that's a simplistic this, this is the assay that you... Yeah, propanium iodide, sorry. Yeah, uh, it's kind of the... It was originally the hallmark of electroporation is that if you got PI in, the only way, since it's impermeable, that it must have gone in is it's diffusing in through pore. Um, that is not 100% true, and especially in more exotic dyes we use, like Yopro, they can go through channels. Uh, they can go through lots of mechanisms. So if we're activating uh, you know, phosphonacetoside signaling, now you have channels being activated, and that's why things can come in over time for a long period of time. So... But the most basic level, though, what happens to like a, a lipid, a spherical lipid bilayer in the presence of a, in, of a vast field? So in the, in the work that's been done in GUVs, they apply a field and you essentially get a large pore in the vesicle that opens. And it usually is quite large. Non-biological, yeah. you will get a hole in a, ves- in a vesicle and then it will close up. But it tends to be very large. And usually the longer the pulse is, the more the pore expands because that's in it. basically you're pushing stuff through the pore and it gets big. But those... In GUVs, the, the research has usually shown uh, giant unilateral vesicles. Sorry. Um, <laughs> These are artificial membranes. Artificial yeah, membranes, yeah. Just, we tend to use GUVs because they're about a micron, even though they're smaller than a cell. They're about a, they're big enough to be relevant to... But there's just the, the initial effect. There's no sort of lingering stabilization. Uh, no, and, and the, uh, the interesting thing is we did a little bit of work on GUVs uh, recently, but they're proving to be difficult to stabilize at that size for us. Um, but we did not see a second harmonic change. So, you know, that destabilization of the membrane we see with nonlinear microscopy, GUVs did not present that. Do so it either, that? it either happened too quickly or it happened or it basically it happened and it closed. So I would actually say, if I was to guess, this is guessing, uh, a vesicle is going to act a lot more like a molecular dynamic simulation than a cell will. So if the pores are formed and annihilated in a very short period of time, with conventional microscopy, you're probably going to miss it. So it's probably the level of impurities. Uh, so in the in the yeah, well, I, I just think cholesterol. Everything is going to act Cholest- to stabilize. If you have something that happens in a cell that's it's big enough to occur, I feel like the cells, unless the thermodynamics are there, the me- membrane is just full of things that are going to inhibit its natural want to go back quickly. Well, the lips are so and it's fluid. I mean, you, and without um, cholesterol, then you have all these lateral diffusion that is all the time. Yeah. Right. right. And without it, probably you're compartmentalizing the membrane, and that's how you can see the, the change in the second harmonic. And so, just for our listeners, you're going to have to talk about the second harmonic and what it actually means. Um, sure. We don't have to go into the, although it is cool, the, the details of the microscopy and the technology, but can you say something about it? So uh, what it was was an attempt to use the, the natural order of the membrane to our advantage. Uh, so uh, there's been molecules that have been intentionally studied for this property of second harmonic, and you can embed them in the membrane and essentially get um, a reporting of the order of the structure. 
So this works really well in non-linear, non-living materials, like highly ordered crystalline structures. It looks, it works great. It works really good in skin where you have collagen. So if you want so to So means the spacing between molecules in the membrane, or does it mean that the order relative the to the incoming beam, the orientation relative to the laser? The orientation. So the more, the more well-oriented something so is. So they're like going all different ways in the membrane, or where they're all lined up parallel to each other in the membrane. Absolutely. That's yeah. what I mean. So yeah, that's what in this case that's what I mean. More of a lattice structure. Um, you, that gives you a higher probability of second harmonics. So it's all you know, with linear optics, it's all a probability game. So we're talking third, second, third order processes, anyways. In this case, we're trying to amplify the statistical probability of that occurring. So that's why these signals are relatively weak compared to let's say confocal microscopy. But they're very compelling. I mean, your pictures, the pictures yeah, really absolutely. look um, I'm convincing, and they're. Anyway, our, our guests haven't seen it, or our uh, listeners so haven't seen it. It was, it was actually pioneered by a French group uh, named Moreau. He was working on this dye, uh, and he was looking at GUV, giant laminar vesicles, and showed that you could see the membrane very well in second harmonics. So we applied that tool to our problem, and we were, I guess, lucky to see that it, it essentially lost second harmonic, which to us meant that this is either something going on with the molecule in the membrane, and we did fluorescent microscopy along with it, and we didn't see any changes in the intensity in the fluorescent signal. So that suggests that the, the, the dye hasn't left, and we have a, the, the dye remains in the solution all the time, so we didn't create a diffusion situation. Um, so it's either the nanopores, or, I mean, our hypothesis being that the poration of the membrane of disturbance is creating this non-order. Meaning or, that, the, that this molecule is now no longer... Or, or yet we think that it's still way. in the membrane. It's just that the membrane is now has a lot of disorder because of the because of the poration. So the molecules in the membrane have disorder. It's not yes. like the membrane's becoming wavy. It's more like the molecules are waving around in the linear membrane. Yes, in the linear membrane, absolutely. Yeah, okay. it's a, it's a very simplistic way to to describe the phenomenon because you would have you know you'd have invaginations and other things in the membrane. But we basically get a, a we get an average signal over that membrane. So the averaged order in the membrane has been disturbed is the way we like to think of it. Are we looking at one pore or hundred? We don't you know we don't know. We just know that but you you will be I'm sorry you will be able to look at the the control condition and look at the statistics of the changes. Mm -hmm. And then can you distinguish that from just regular noise and get an idea of the of the natural formation of pores? Yeah, that's, uh, that's uh, in a way, that's why we went after the angular information, because uh -huh. the pore distribution should be angularly dependent. In other words, you should have more disruption at the poles and less disruption as you get uh, you know, essentially per parallel with the field. Uh -huh. So that's why we did the angular analysis, and you can see that we basically got quenching at the highest poles that were had the, essentially theoretically had no field affecting them, because they're the field essentially goes around them. Mm -hmm. So that was the reason why we wanted to see that radial distribution. Oh. Because if it was just the whole cell went dark, well, there's a thousand reasons why, you know, you lose fluorescence all the time, or sometimes you expose cells and the fluorescence gets brighter, and you're like, I, I don't really know why that is occurring. That could be ROS, it could be pH. But in this case, it was very spatially specific and also agreed very well with a really simple electric circuit model. We were surprised at how well it fit that model. The caveat is that we don't know what exactly it's representing. We are postulating. We, we compare the formation of pores in the model to the loss of signal in second harmonic. There's a jump there. There's a theoretical assumption that those are the same. So how do pores form in the model? There's an electric field, and something happens, and then a hole opens up. Mm -hmm. Like. Yeah, you essentially What's the have something in between. Well, you essentially have little. It's treated as an electric circuit, so it's essentially a breakdown of that capacitor. Once the capacitor reaches a one volt charging voltage, it's assumed to be. A so I've sort of seen capa capacitors actually break down. Yes. 
I like to think of it, they blow up. I like yeah. to think of it that way in biology, but in the model, it's essentially reaching a threshold voltage. The model doesn't have a catastrophe built in as far as a, a true formation. I see. So at some point, the the, capac the capacitance of the membrane shorts, or it. You know, it essentially reaches this, uh, it's the charging voltage exceeds, classically, they call one volt. So if you charge the membrane from, you know, wherever it is in the millivolts to one volt, uh -huh. that at point would be a poor forming event, is what they call it. So I'm just trying to visualize the physics of the whole forming. Here's a bunch of, you know, lipid molecules, and they've got this big field across them. Why would they form a hole? Uh, from the molecular dynamics, it's based on the water. The water is forming a hole, not the mm -hmm. field. Uh, if you trust the, if, if you go by the mechanodynamics being the gospel for this, the water is essentially forcing itself through because it's being driven, and that forces the membrane. The membrane essentially responds by forming a pore. So there's two schools there. There's also what they call hydrophobic pores, which is a disturbance between the, the phospholipids that doesn't manifest itself in a pore. It's just a, essentially a spreading of them. So let's say you had a water channel or water coming in, but it didn't actually make it all the way. So the the classical electroporation work described two kinds of channels. You have a hydrophobic and a hydrophilic. When we talk about nanopores, we're really talking about hydrophilic. Essentially, they've it's become a channel in which ions can flow through. But there's a threshold, right? I'm sure there's, an, there's definitely like a Gibbs free energy that you have to get yeah. to, to, to force it. And, and so the why? flipping of the water molecules want it. Cross the membrane. Is it to get to the other side? That's true. Why do the water molecules force their way through the membrane during the electric field? I mean, they're, it's because of their charge? Yeah, they're orienting, and then their charge is pushing through. And it's it's essentially an, it's a not, it's an unlikely process in this case. So most of the water is just charged on both sides. You also have this field across the membrane. Push it, driving that gradient. Yeah. Oh, what, what happens in, in other high-energy water manipulations, just like thermal events? This has to be a, a, a polarity-inducing thing. That produces, do, do pores get formed in, like when you heat up these TUVs? No. That's, a, that's stepping into theoretical territory. I would say that, like I said in the, in the talk, random events where water finds its way through the membrane probably occurs all the time, and there's a, a really good a bunch of papers by uh, a gentleman named as Heimberg in Denmark. I think he works at Niels Bohr Institute, and he talks about um, lipidic ion channels, is what he termed them, at least in one paper. He changes the name a little bit. Um, and that, his theory, is, his outlandish theory was that ion channels don't exist at all, which most people disagreed with. But he was basically has a lot of compelling data in artificial membrane, plain artificial membranes, showing these random events that occur without any electrical stimulus of opening and closing of pores. And instead of a channel, which, you know, in electrophysiology looks kind of like a square, like a stair step, it's open and then closed. His look more like a, gra uh, like a spike, like an opening and then a closing that occurs in short time, so microseconds. And he's shown these to exist in lots of ways. So he would say that, to paraphrase what I've heard from in his presentations, that these always exist and the cell is constantly using these to its advantage, is the way he explained it. And so channels are a fine-tuning way of dealing with the already leaky system that exists. So the membrane itself leaks, ions come in and go out, and the channels are there to mediate that to maintain it. But it's already a destable system, a relatively unstable system, mm. as far as it's not a perfect wall. These things always exist, and so the, the, that's where in the talk I talked about the fact that the current thought is that these fields just exacerbate an already existing propensity of the cell to have these defects. And it, to some degree, from an entropy standpoint, I guess that's the right term. It makes sense that you have this constant need to hold yourself in equilibrium in, the, in these membranes with 
always be thermodynamically moving. And I think as you increase temperature, I think somebody asked about temperature, you're going to increase the probability of these, but you may also decrease uh, the longevity of these events. In other words, they may get much shorter because you have so much thermal energy that they open, they close, they do, you know, it's, it's this dynamic system that's constantly having these defects versus, I mean, this is more my personal opinion, but the idea of thinking that a membrane is a static structure is probably not right, where it has no problems. It probably is always dealing with constant problems. So any slight change in local ion concentration could have formed, could form a pore that then immediately gets resolved and then the channels fix, you know, they move. The ions get moved one way or another by pumps or other channels to remedy and hold that memory potential. And recent, very recent work uh, that we've been working on uh, that I didn't show is we have a, a very high-speed camera system uh, that we use street cameras. So we actually put fluorovolt dye, which is a membrane-sensitive dye, into cells. And we've looked at them at the time of the pulse because it's essentially a sweeping technology. So we can take a slice of the cell across and we can sweep it in real time uh, and see in, you know, basically the entire image is a line scan of one microsecond of time. And we can actually see fluorovolt responding to the pulse on both sides of the cell and coming back. So we can actually see that the pulse truly got to the cell, which is very hard to see that we actually, because you, you postulate when you put electrodes in water, the cell must have felt the field. Well, you kind of want the cell to have a report of it says, yeah, the field was there. So we now know the field is definitely there. Uh, and we also know that the cell very quickly works on getting that membrane potential back. It doesn't just go, oh, I have holes and that's the world just deal with it. No, it's constantly, it instantly turns things on to regulate that back. But it's thermodynamic then, no, it's not metabolic because it's so fast, right? I mean, it's, it's so well, we see, we see, um, we see basically a loss of membrane potential, like we saw before, a couple, like 10 to 15 millivolt difference. And then over time, it comes back. Like oh, that's a long term. So we did, okay. Yeah, long term in patch clamp, you see that in Pescom Books Physiology, we see this memory potential change. And then over the course of five minutes, it slowly comes back up. But it's never like catastrophic, if that makes sense. So uh, we think, we're pretty sure that we get um, a very high electric potential across the cell while we expose. Because in our case, we're working with a dye that has a dynamic range of about 300 millivolts. And it's essentially railed every time we pulse it. There is no dynamic range, no matter what pulse down to about 10, 10 volts, which is very low. We tend to apply. Uh, I wonder, like, like in your work, you're you're looking at uh, very large uh, fields, right? Like kilovolts per centimeter. Yeah. But um, and I don't know the numbers for deep brain stimulation, right? That um, much insert, is it is it much lower? Uh, yeah. Mm-hmm. We. To, to add on to that, I had that question about that in the talk. We think that what the work that we're doing related specifically to how the electrodes are interacting with the system and delivering their energy and how the cells are reporting that has far-reaching consequences with neuroscience, people that use electrodes all the time. Mm-hmm. So they use coaxial electrodes or you use you know, sharp electrodes and all these other things. So a lot of the work that I didn't talk too much about, which is the dosimetry part, trying to figure out how much of the energy gets to the cell and how does it look radially, um, that I think has far-reaching implications for anybody that uses the electrode system. A really old question is what is stimulated with electrical stimulation? And the first step toward answering it is to build a model of the field. But the model of the field assumes that everything is isotropic and homogeneous, (laughs) but it never is. And and so if there was actually a way to measure the, the field experimentally... That is a good question. I have to be a little careful because I have a, an outstanding grant, which that's the goal. Uh-huh. So measure to do microscopic, microscopic dosimetry of what you really... So if you put a coaxial neuroelectric neuro probe in there and put millivolts on it, what does the field actually look like to the cell sitting mm-hmm. there? Because we don't have that. Yeah, can you 
can it penetrate at the, that low right. voltage, yeah. right? Because um, so it's, it's fat. <laughs> when you go around. It's like, yeah. So that's one of the, I mean, that's to us, I mean, it's, it's one of those things where you build a system and you put electrodes in the solution and you expose cells. And this is going to sound crude, but the way I know if the pulsar is working is the pulse shows up on the microscope and then I hit a cell 20 times and I look at it and if it blebs, then I know it must be working. Like, because you can have a disconnect and the scope can lie to you, right? So you, you, you have to look at, and so that kind of brought about the idea of we need to find something that really will measure the system. You know, you can measure current and voltage very easily. You can look for, you can just pulse a million times, look for bubbles on your electrode to make sure it's getting there. But there's a lot of mystery that needs to be ironed out there. And I feel like in, in other systems, there's also that mystery when you're using electrodes that are you really delivering? I mean, your system may say 30 millivolts. Is that what the cell saw or did the cell see uh, substantially less? And like you said, I'm, I'm not um, an expert in, in neurostimulation, but I always wonder if they know exactly what's causing the stimulation or if it just happens to happen and that's good. I know for sure that we don't know. Okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, we're stimulating. What is the blebbing? Is that a secondary effect of, of calcium, or like what? Uh, that, do you know what? what, what from it? what we've seen, as far as nanosecond pulses, it's a um, detachment of the actin to the membrane by uh, the activation of HIP2 hydrolysis or depletion. Um, there, however, I'm going to tiptoe very carefully there because there are entire papers written about blebbing. It is in itself a science, so I will be careful as to what I say about nanosecond induced blebbing. Does it happen in vivo? What is it, Cas9? Cas9, right? I'm going say apoptosis. Yeah, apoptotic pathways, it's been, it's been quite studied. This is very rapid. It's, it's within recovers. 30 seconds. It does recover, and then sometimes it doesn't, depending on how much you, you apply. Um, in vivo, because you have structural components in and around cells and tissues, it doesn't appear that you get as much. You definitely don't get blebbing like you think, but you do get some swelling, but it's, it's moderated because you don't have such a different... There's structural components there, so the ones that people that do it clinically, I don't think report tremendous amounts of tissue swelling. So and that opens up the idea that we have the ability to change. Some of the work I also didn't talk too much about is we're working on modifying the conditions in which the cell is in and seeing how it responds and what is an interesting phenomenon is if we lower the conductivity of our solution, uh, which we can do and keep osmo osmotic balance the, the same, uh, we get a tremendously higher especially for, like, say, PI uptake or Yopra uptake. So the cells are more susceptible, or they seem to be more susceptible when they're in a lower kind to the media. The problem with that is, like anything, that, that reduced your current. It reduced uh, other effects that might be surface electrode effects. And you also now have a cell sitting in sucrose solution, so you have to figure out, is that really affecting the biology as well? you got channels. You got, so we're still working on what that means in, in the field in general. There's uh, multiple people working on trying to figure out what that means. Uh, so those the are, amount of current that's actually crossing the cell because absolutely. now the cell is effectively lower resistance than the, than relative to the surround. Yes, it also the amplifies the field and limits the current in the whole system. So you feel, so we even in our case have to turn down our applied voltage to match the non or the conductive case in, in voltage because right. you get so much, you get more field. Essentially your resistance yeah, so there's a lot of dynamics to that question. It's not an easy one, hence I don't yet talk completely about it because I don't uh, have a good conclusion. But it's interesting uh, from our standpoint because it affects all of the models that take those parameters into account. And if you tweak one and suddenly the cell over-responds, I'm not sure the model predicts that well. And that's one of the biggest uh, things I, I mentioned about and it's uh, some of the ongoing discussions I'm having with other scientists is that the model has remained simplistic uh, for electroporation because it, it worked for the experimental data at the time. 
but it doesn't take almost anything into account uh, that's important if you're talking about a biological system. It, they really treat it like an electric circuit. How do you layer the electrical and the mechanical and all the sort of flux there, and as well as the molecular? Like, is, there, is it possible to I think that I've, I've always felt that the, the molecular dynamic simulations and the macroscopic observations are going to are going to be in the same problem that physics has with that, right? Whenever you get to the quantum to the to the to the macro, there's just this disconnect that doesn't quite always fit. Um, but it does appear in our in our in our situation that the microdynamics seems to be correct. I think that there's a lot of things not in that model: cholesterol, proteins, a lot of things that may really slow down or retard that poor collapsing time, uh, and then get a lot closer to what we think may be going on. But in general, it's going to come down to, um, in my opinion, some kind of a control theory slash systems biology approach to this the biophysical effect that then manifests itself in the in what we know biological pathways that we can establish. But as you seem to know, that's very. I mean, those are complex pathways that have many so for, groups. What, uh, for the to connect up to listeners, one of the results that you have is we, we imagine the electroporation being a momentary event. There's a whole farmed. The thing I wanted to get into the cell got in. The cell didn't die. Mm -hmm. And since it didn't die, it must have just healed up immediately. And now it must be a completely normal cell. But, uh, but uh, I mean, that's sort of the simple-minded view yeah. of a person using electroporation who, who doesn't really care about electroporation. Yeah, just wanted to get right? that in. Nuclear effectors work. But a lot of what you're seeing are things that are downstream consequences from intracellular signaling pathways they got triggered by the poor formation and then don't rely on it anymore to yeah. run their course. And those things could take a long time to resolve, maybe never even res completely resolve. And so right. the cell's been permanently altered, even though the membrane may be healed, the scars remain. Right, that was in, that's a traumatic Yes. I was reflecting on that a little bit with the, the, the lack of genetic information of cells that are simply electroporated. Because if you go, you, you can find millions of papers on genetic electroporation. Every time as we put this in and it now fluoresces, okay, or it, it does what it does, it's transcribed. I found, I think it was in 2013, I was very into this, and I found one paper that had come out like that year that just said, you know, we electroporated cells and we looked at their genetic the changes in their in their mRNA over time, just to see what we were doing, and there's effects. So those effects, I don't know if they go away in a couple of days or they're not important, but I believe that you would be kind of concerned if you were transfecting a gene and one of the genes that you happen to be really messing with with the poration is the same thing you're trying to study. That is that is going to be a concern. So to think it's a what do you call it a completely annealed process? I mean, I think if you wait a week, you're probably okay at least of what I've seen, but. Uh, to your point, we're not. I'm not sure if there's a, a history to that cell now that it's been exposed. Because sometimes intracellular signaling pathways produce changes that are persistent. Yeah. And of course, in your cells, maybe they weren't, but maybe I, I have uh, no idea. Yeah. So <laughs> yeah. they might be right. But the fact that uh, your work shows that second messengers like IP3 are affected by by the pulse, I mean that's a, a one of the fundamental pathways for well, certain kinds plasticity. of pulses, though, right? For, for it's less affected with the certain, bipolar. Yeah, yes, but that's a, yeah, I, that's a mystery. 
we don't really know why uh, that pulse shape. But then, I mean, in terms of, like, I mean, I was thinking uh, there's less pressure to do this kind of work because of all the other advancements, but um, electroporation in vivo. Something like, well, um, people anesthetize the animal, they put their bipolar electrode, they put their uh, viral particles, and then they, <laughs> they you, you electrocute the animal, right? You, 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 you put a lot of energy there. And that could cause a lot of problems with the, the things that you want to measure uh, eventually. Yeah. But it seems that uh, there's no safe, uh, there's no, no, no good way because what you're saying or in the data that is coming out from other labs is like, even if you reduce the pulse and increase the energy, uh, the the transfection is because you're pulling the DNA into the cell, not because you're making it poor. That's one of the, the theories. Um, so in some of the work where a lot of a lot of the groups that work in nanosecond pulse, they specifically look at transfection efficiency. And nanopulses in a region that you wouldn't expect can transfect very well. You can get bleomycin to go in as well. Um, so the advantage of the shorter pulses is the less total energy delivery. Yeah, yeah. You get away from thermal, because in, in, even in electroporation clinically, you're always trying to, I wouldn't say prove that it's not thermal, but it's always there that you're putting a pretty long electrical pulse in there, so the chance of you also killing that tissue by cooking it is is to be avoided. Uh, so the promise of going shorter and shorter and having oh. much more brief pulses, and the, the, the so far the luck is that it seems to not have a massive change of efficiency as far as getting that, getting that, um, oh, okay. that in. So. Well, but it remains a, it remains a, a, a continuous line of research, I guess. So I'm not uh, as a, I'm not by a trade a clinical. Uh, as I said, I don't I don't focus much on transfection efficiency. Yeah. So I, I I more look at the genetic effects of just the pulses to see what's going on, and most of it is very transient, and it looks they either die uh, by apoptosis or acutely by necrosis, or they go through what I would say is. A pretty generic stress response from what we see. Like I said, it had mechanical tendencies. A lot of it were G-coupled proteins and things that are, have been already shown with stretching and pulling of cells that they have a similar genetic experience or response to that. But nothing that I would say, we were looking for the gold gene, right? The gene that's the electroporation gene, right? But it generally looks uh, like a general stress response. It is, however, absent of things like heat shock, so we know we're not doing protein unfolding or denaturation. We don't really see what we would... And then our controls are typically heated cells, you know, near the apoptotic level of heat, so 44 degrees at 40 minutes is what we control against, and the genetic signatures have very few uh, in common. But overall goodness? Overall, overall very low. So in, in, I think in, in the one paper we have... Uh, heat shock gave us like 700 genes, and we validated those most. I mean, not heat, uh, heat shock in the cells gave us like 700 or so up and 300 down, and uh, nanoporation was like 100 up and 70 down, uh, statistically relevant. So, I don't, I don't think that it's. I think that it's, it's interesting that it was never studied. As if, I mean, most of us would have, if we were doing something to a biological system, we'd probably try to figure out if what we're doing causes an effect. It was interesting to see that there were very few papers to see if electroporation itself had the effect, because in all other cases, lipofectamine, or even DMSO with dyes, you tend to put DMSO by yourself without the dye to make sure that it's not the DMSO doing right. the job, not what you're adding. So it seemed interesting that there didn't seem to be robust controls for that. But that was just an observation when we were having to write papers about genetics. Right. Like, is there anything previously we can talk about? Well, there's this one single paper that did, uh, did that. So. But it's also, I think, has a lot to do with where the technology matured relative, relative to when genetic analysis matured. So when electroporation in the 80s and 90s was very hot, it was very expensive and very unlikely that you would do a full screen 
uh, for Gene because it just wasn't feasible. So I'm, I think that may have a lot to do with why it was never. And then at that point, it became less of uh, more used technologically and less interesting as far as a field of study. I was a, a long answer to that right, question. Right. <laughs> so I think I'm not saying I'm not necessarily accusing somebody of ignoring it. I'm saying I think just the way history progressed that it just didn't seem like something that was studied. So for us, we like we wanted to go after filling that niche and seeing if we can find out if there was something. Important. Yeah, we didn't find the the, uh, the classic family of electroporation genes. We were hoping that it would be very something would be very unique about it, but most of them were either uh, relatively innocuous, as you know from gene studies, you get a lot of random, and then a lot of them seem to be mechanical. How do you think morphological complexity play, plays into these responses? Do you have sort of differing, do, do fields sort of hit first? <laughs> I mean, do they sort of move? They essentially, all or nothing. Yeah, they thing, essentially right? wash across in a direction across the cell. So it's very directional. So it's not, there's not much to that as far as the, you know, like we have an anode and a cathode and you get more effect on one side than the other. Um, that's one of the things that uh, I won't take credit for this. This is one of the, the other people in the field, uh, Dr. Tom Bernier has has been talking a lot recently about the fact that the model does not take into account shape. It, all cells are circular, and they're all of a certain size. And, and it, for each experiment, you can morph that parameter to make it right, but you, know, you start talking about neurons or muscle spindles, it's totally... Well, that's, yeah. So that, that, I think, is a challenge to the field to tackle that issue. And is it really true that biological fats are... Um, do, are they really... They don't have any electrical response, like any sort of response to, yeah, like, well, like, well, I mean, I the, the way they would, I mean, they tend to be, like, glycosylated and full of other, I mean, they, they are responsive. Oh, absolutely. Uh, there's a, uh, no, so sorry if you took that from the, the water uh, thing. No, there's actually a lot of work going on in uh, Lewis Mears lab in France where they're looking at the reactive oxygen species actually um, altering the lipid conformation during these pulses. So we're generating ROS, we have lipid changes. Uh, they're using Raman spectroscopy to look at this in real time. Uh, it's a very interesting result. So even when these pulses come through the system, you have a thermal, you have most likely have ROS generation either directly, which is, seems to be modest, or indirectly by the rapid cellular metabolism. So you have a lot of things going on that I think are, in the field itself, altering lipid. Uh, in some way, uh, definitely their position and orientation, um, but there also seems to be some evidence about chemical modification. Right, and, and, and it's... What, Chemists called biological water, right? It's not just pure water. Oh, um, and then, yes. then you have all these ions. <laughs> now you have interfacial water. In yeah, yeah, and then you have yeah. the rearrangement of all these ions that could also, um, you can move them. I mean, you can also move those that are charged. Yeah. Absolutely. And then you can have flow, but you force, you can, and you can pierce the membrane, I guess. Yeah, absolutely. There's definitely ionic force, uh, yeah. in the, in, and that's some of the, the stuff going about, like calcium drift, and, and using. I mean, that's ionophoresis or electrophoresis of calcium. So you have all these forces acting on these ions at the same time. Uh, I mean, I'm not uh, an expert in in uh, we call it ion regulation around cells, but even looking for calcium indicators, uh, the the uh, non homogeneity of calcium with in and around cells is quite amazing. So in these models, you treat it like, oh, I have 140 millimolar. Like yeah, but you have you know you have a lot more on the membrane than that. It's not it's not you know isotropic and homogeneous distribution of ions either. These ions are there, and, and even as recently as uh, uh, you know the last couple of weeks, they've been talking about certain dyes inherently stick to the membrane. So when you say oh this dye got in, well did you know that the membrane was already precharged because you let it sit there for fifteen minutes with way more concentration of dye than you thought you had in that solution. So there's a lot of these questions of of uh, assumed homogeneity of 
distribution of things that would play a huge role. Uh, you know, so there's a lot of calcium indicators that show very strong calcium concentrations at and around the membrane, but then it dissipates as you go away. So you have an essentially a gradient already there in just that one ion. Uh, so that's the kind of thing that I think the, the, the general model we try to have been trying to feed information into doesn't have. And that may play a big role in some of these uh, intercellular processes. Because if you just modulate a little bit of the calcium concentration in a local area, it's very likely that the cell would treat that as an activating uh, situation. I'll tread softly in that in that topic because I'm not an intracellular uh, <laughs> calcium expert. This is a, a great interface of such a bunch of interesting sets of ways to look at this problem. Um, but thank you for the visit. This has been great. Um, this is the Neuroscientist Talk Shop with Bennett Ivy today. Thanks. How does my statin do it? Like, how do these fungal things, how do they make pores? They just they, they are they are ion channels. They're just oh. uh, granocytin I know that well is just a protein that is a ion channel. Yeah. So it just once mm-hmm. it gets the source, do the same thing. But saponin, right? I mean, so yeah, that's a that's detergent. So, mm-hmm. No, yeah, digitonin's one that's, of our positive that's controls too. If we want to make they just make it whole. Yeah, yeah. I think is ionophore. What's the one we use to permeabilize tissues? Saponin. We only know Triton X100. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Those are soaps. Those are very old, right? Yeah, yeah, no, totally. Isn't, I thought, yeah. So when the water. But ionomycin is a molecule that opens up a physical hole yeah. to lead in calcium, and that's an ionophore, right? Yeah. So it, it by nature, open, essentially creates a window in the membrane. Which we've also used as we. The funny thing is, what you talk about is like our positive control. <laughs> we mm-hmm. want to disturb a membrane with digitonin in it, and we're like, yep, there, be hyper right. These ideas about things penetrating through the lipid membrane predate ion channels. So there was a whole, yeah. there, was a, there was a giant literature on, you know, lipid water partition coefficient and the yep. energy of activation because <laughs> they didn't know about something right. else because that's how they yeah the actual potential right was, the actual was, potential was supposed yeah. to be was poor is mm-hmm. breakdown right. of the exactly. uh, capacitor yeah. so that the um, which way <laughs> the water molecules are forcing their way across the membrane are they trying to get out or are they trying to get in uh, in the models, it, well, in the model, it's essentially the field is it's essentially in the direction of the field. Mm-hmm. So in and out would be relevant to what side of the cell. So on one side, they'd be trying to go in, but they're still, essentially trying to move from one side to the other. So side. that that doesn't match what you see, which is the, the side that's close to the anode. Is it does? Yeah, it seems to match the side. I'm, I'm saying you have a uh, a higher effect on one side than the other. Yeah, but why sense. do you? I mean, the water's coming no. in on this side, it's going out on the I would love to tell you that answer because I've pos- I've, I've asked the, those that are more theoretical in my field. I said, okay, I always see more effect on one side than the other, and I ran your model, and it says it should be the same on both sides because memory potential charging is memory potential charging. Yeah. I shouldn't care. I have no answer. But the water is electronegative, and the oxygen is more massive, so it depends but I guess the, the cloud of the electronegativity, then just because it's it's going to align, I mean, the Mickey Mouse hat, right? <laughs> it's going to... Because <laughs> I'm a simple guy. So the, the, the oxygen is going to align to the negative. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Who? No, 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 the, no, no, the opposite, the, the opposite, yeah. yeah, yeah. So the, uh, the, the, 
So, well, so yeah. the oxygen will go to the negative. No, the negative, the positive. The ears are right? facing the cathode. Uh, but it's the most yeah. massive. So, I mean, it's not, I mean, at that level, maybe... Do you maybe, think the pointy end will go through better? <laughs> no, it's just well, like, where are the electrons? Because it's, it's where is more massive, right? I don't know. I don't know. I mean, because it's flow. I don't know. <laughs> Planck equation. Cool. All right. Really that was, that was fun. Yeah. Okay with you to, to post that? Yeah. Cool. Thank you. We don't have to get any super, super secret military clearance. No, it's all science. I'm good. Cool. <laughs> I was just telling you what everybody else has published. The nearest one is talk about the biophysics edition. Right. <laughs> yeah. It's not the most crazy topic we've ever had. No. Not by a lot. Sorry. No, this is awesome. This is okay, great. I think some of the weirder ones, like some of the language ones, have been kind of like weird. Not the. Oh, not you do the, cognitive as well? That kind of stuff? Yeah. yeah. All the genetic the weirdest ones. Well, we're going to do some like brain tumor ones. I, I don't have to decide if we want to do. I think probably we should. Sure. Bunch of brain brain tumor is neuroscience. Mm-hmm. No. Yep. It is now. Yep. It always has been. I mean, neuroscience, is it not? I'm sorry? Everything's neuroscience. It's like the great frontier. Well, it's a brain something, and it's for sure not. <laughs> Nobody cares about skin anymore, right? It's all, it's all neuro. Yeah.